Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society to discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Tracy Ann Oberman is an unstoppable force. For decades, she's dazzled theatergoers at the Royal Shakespeare Company, become a beacon of light on our television screens in shows like EastEnders, Friday Night Dinner, Afterlife, and It's a Sin, all whilst fitting in time to become an accidental activist and a leading voice in the fight against anti-Semitism in the UK. Her next project is based on a true story. BBC One's new four-part drama, Ridley Road, takes us back to London in the swinging 60s, where a young Jewish woman starts working with an anti-fascist collective called the 62 Group. Tracy plays Nancy, the wife of the group's leader. Uh, I spoke to her earlier and began by talking about how Ridley Road recounts a part of history that's often undertold. That's the beauty of it. I think people are vaguely aware of um, of Oswald Mosley in 1936. I think they're less aware of the anti-Semitism and the fascist rise in 1943. But this, the fact that people had forgotten the rise of anti-Jewish hatred and fascism and violence led by Colin Jordan on the streets of Britain in 1962 has been a real eye-opener for most people. Yeah, because I think people all thought that, that you know, the Second World War put paid to that, don't they? I think that's the shocker. Uh, And it was for me, I knew a lot about it because my family members were all part of that kind of group and that that sort of vigilante group. I'd grown up hearing about it. But I think when I saw the real footage that had been weaved into the show by director Lisa, I could not believe that in 1962, only 20 years after British troops had liberated those concentration camps and that that England was so aware, particularly of the horrors of those of of Nazi Germany, that fascism had taken hold and risen um, again with the idea of blaming the Jew for taking something away from the ordinary member of, uh, of the public. Tell us a a little bit about the show's storyline and and how it unfolds from the perspective of the young Vivian Epstein. Yes, so it's based on the source material of the book by Joe Bloom and Sarah Soleimani has done a brilliant adaptation of it. A young girl from Manchester falls in love with a, a boy that isn't her fiance. <clears throat> he she traces tracks him down to London, um, where she thinks he works for her father's uh, fashion industry, the Schmutter trade down in London. And in fact, he disappears completely. And one day she's walking through um, in London as a runaway, working as a hairdresser. And she stumbles across Colin Jordan's horrible fascist march full of Nazi flags and perished Jews signs. And she sees her the love of her life standing amongst them. And she can't believe it. She's horrified. And uh, she then basically through watching him and seeing what him there she gets picked up by her uncle and aunt who I play only to find out that her the love of her life has infiltrated the 62 group Colin Jordan's fascist group and is working to get intel on when they next plan to burn down a synagogue and desecrate um, graves and murder Jews and she has to go in and rescue him and then finds herself at the heart of an espionage um Uh, an espionage mission to basically uh, find out intel on this massive... She infiltrates them, basically, doesn't she? She infiltrates this this fascist 
gang really and has to compromise herself because she has you know she she ends up um flattering and getting involved in a relationship with Colin Jordan who is a real person and who we must never forget was married to the lovely um Françoise Dior of the Dior fashion house who was a terrible anti-semite and fascist gosh there's so many strands to this I don't know where to start (laughs) but let's let's talk about the fact that you play the formidable Nancy who supports her husband in in running this uh, covert uh, group of Jewish anti-fascist uh, activists and, and in a way it's it's ever more poignant because you've been so very open about the relentless uh, and public anti-semitic abuse that you've faced in, in recent years so did taking on the role carry even more weight than usual yeah, I, this this project was really, really close for my, to my heart for a very long time. And the producer, Nicola and Schindler, and I have been talking about it and an involvement in it. Yes, you know, I, activists are born, not made. I ended up speaking out against horrible misogyny and anti-Semitism that I saw rising in my party, in the Labour Party in 2018, 19, 20. And, um, and I've spoken out very vocally and been rounded on uh, and abused both online and in real life for it. So playing Nancy was was a was a real um, merging of my acting and activism in a perfect storm because the project is so close to my heart. The character is close to my heart because, you know, it's often women that are at the forefront of these wars, these battles. You know, it all stems from the home. Women are often there with their hand in the back of their men. They may not go out and fight, but they're they're very much there maneuvering behind the scenes and they often get written out of the narrative. So to have Nancy as as a very forefront member of the 62 group meant the world to me as a representation of those women. The story of, of Ridley Road, as you've touched on uh, moments ago, it has parallels with your own family history before the Second World War. Tell me a little bit about their experiences. My great-grandmother came over from the pogroms in Russia, like many other Jewish peoples, um, at 14. She was sent on a boat um, because of the terrible Cossack and Russian anti-Semitism. She watched her father nearly being beheaded and she escaped being raped. She was sent over to London on a boat. She came over, she slept in a factory and uh, she came to, she called England the sort of the holy land. They were so happy to be here. She met my great-grandfather who was an active communist in Russia, also Jewish from the next village. And they came over here and they had their children and they felt very safe here. And then in 1936, Oswald Mosley and his obsession with Hitler. Let's not forget that Oswald Mosley got married to his second wife in the House of Goebbels with Hitler as his witness. Um, took a lot of leaves out of uh, Hitler's book and decided that the Jewish entity was the main problem and would probably get him elected into Parliament. So he did a huge march on the battle of, uh, called the Battle of Cable Street. A huge march backed by the police and by the Daily Mail and by a lot of the upper classes allowed him to march down. Uh, into the east end of London, where my great-grandmother, my grandmother and my great-uncles and all that my uncles and aunts stood against them with all the working-class communities around them standing side by side. And they fought those fascists. They overturned milk trucks. My grandmother says she remembers throwing rotten fruit out of windows and marbles under the feet of of the police and the marchers to stop them passing. And they did. You shall not pass. And that was a a real moment that I was brought up hearing about. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're talking about an uh, active uh, Jewish unit fighting back 
these fascists and you're talking about your grandparents putting up resistance and it, that's actually a side of the Jewish story I think that's very unexplo- underexplored as well you know too often it's a portrayal of victims and and victors I suppose in exactly. a way but actually there was huge resistance from the Jewish community and and it must be a source of some frustration that that isn't uh, given oxygen enough of the time. Well, you know, that's exactly it, Mariana. And I think we're often seeing, you know, there's three, when people think, you know, in this country, we have archetypes. Our archetype is Fagin from Dickens. A Jewish archetype is Shylock, this mean money lender, and our other archetype are Holocaust victims or very rich people. And one of the things and the frustrations that I found over the years, um, particularly in Labour, was that, you know, my great grandparents helped form the Labour Party. They were these massive trade unionists. They fought for workers' rights. They were socialists. And to be told by the Labour Party, you're not welcome here, to have that history erased, the feeling that I'd go to Glastonbury and see these posters talking about the Rothschilds or the evils of the world and this this sort of this, you know, murals that sort of portray Jewish bankers, real Nazi vernacular that was coming out on the left portraying Jews as sort of, you know, if we talked about our anti-Semitism, it meant we had an ulterior motive, that we were working as a foreign operative, that everything was about Israel, that only anti-Semitism existed because of Israel. There were so many nasty tropes that came out over that time. So, yes, it was deeply frustrating. I think you left the Labour Party in 2016 over what you saw as a, a lack of action over alleged anti-Semitism under, under Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't think you you've yet rejoined will you do you think well i've been watching um i've been watching very closely here is my mp and i was you know i was i think he's done he's gone some way but i think there's a he's got a difficult job but i i don't know i don't think he has completely um he has completely uh purged the party of of people who hold very anti-jewish sentiment or rather they some people hide their their palestinian activism um, with a message that has very Nazi-esque vernacular. And I think you can absolutely be pro-Palestinian rights and equality, um, but without holding um, anti-Semitism in, 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 as you're sort of as behind you. You've, you feel what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You've said before that um, finding your voice has, has made you fearless, but you paid a, a pretty high price for speaking your mind. Um how much has your podcast, Trolled with uh, Tracy Ann Oberman, helped you to navigate mm-hmm. that online space and, and, and made you feel like, you know, you, you, the weapons are back in, in your hands, as it were, or the control or the, the power? Well, you know, it's really funny, Mariella, because everybody at the time, you know, people kept saying to me, well, why do you stay on social media? Why are you staying on Twitter? And I could see that Twitter was actually a battlefield because news, you know, journalists would take their, you know, they'd see what was trending. So you could manipulate a news cycle by using Twitter to push an agenda. So if you had engines of people that were constantly tweeting uh, Rothschild stuff or Jewish stuff or Zionists controlling the BBC, you could push that as an agenda. Um, I could also see that through the Christchurch massacre and the synagogue um, uh, shootings in America, people were getting radicalized online. And when I looked to leadership um, to sort of puncture uh, what social media was allowing to push as fake news, I couldn't see any. So, you know, I saw pictures of Luciana Berger, the Jewish MP with her face grafted onto the body of a rat with the words Jewish. You know, I saw so much stuff that was making me feel deeply uncomfortable and deeply upset. 
And in the end, in the absence of anybody else sort of speaking out, particularly in the party, you know, as a, as a sort of a mere actress, as they kept telling me, I, I ended up speaking out. And it was, a, it was a very big risk because I was told by people in my industry, do not speak out against Jeremy Corbyn because they will cancel you. He is beloved by many. And this industry, which is very left leaning, will not tolerate it. And it was it was brave in that respect because I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And but did I didn't you feel, feel that? Did you feel that? Yeah, I had so many people writing to me from my industry behind the scenes saying, whilst I agree with you 100%, what I'm seeing is repulsive. I am so scared to speak out on it. And you're really brave. And at the, it's never felt like bravery. But when I look back, um, I've been somebody asked me to sort of go through all the tweets and all the abuse that I got and things that would happen when I would go out. It was kind of unbelievable. But it was all there because it's so there is an intersectionality between misogyny as well and um, and anti-Semitism, because I would notice that my dear friend David Baddiel would be putting out similar content talking about casual anti-Semitism. And I would say the same thing, whereas he would get a certain amount of abuse. Mine would be visceral, sexual um you know, almost fetishistic. It, it, it was, and it was about silencing women. Mm. And the more that they wanted me to go away and shut up and throw all this abuse at me. I was a paedophile. I was a Zionist shill. Everything I ever said about the Labour Party was because I was a rich Jew who was being a tax evader. I mean, Mariella, on it goes, on it goes. Um, all of that stuff never, never made me want to go away for a minute because through real time, people could see people that were saying there's no such thing as anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It just doesn't exist because it's the party of equality. Could see real time what was happening to me and then Rachel Riley and other women that stood up on, on social media. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? 
Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's a l l b i r d s.com. Code SUPER24. As I said, you've become uh, not a reluctant but but an accidental activist and I can feel your fury powered <laughs> by rage. Passion, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, I think that as women we have to actually go, yeah, we're angry. I think we have to claim anger as 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 part of our arsenal, as it were, because we have every right to be angry. And I mean, the situation that you're outlining, you know, you'd, you'd need a lobotomy if you weren't angry. <laughs> Frankly, um, you know, the thing that was frustrating, Mariella, is, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, our, our, our age group and generation was always told when a minority tells you that it feels a certain way, you just have to listen to it and accept it. You don't define it, try and analyze it, try and, and reframe it and try and find the hidden agenda. And as David Baddiel has said so brilliantly in his book, Jews Don't Count, we wouldn't dream and the Labour Party and others would not have a dream of telling a person who says they feel people are being racist to them because of their colour, would never dream of turning around and going, ah, yes, but what you mean is... Mm blah, 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 blah. Or, oh, you feel somebody's being homophobic. Well, they're not being homophobic. What you mean is, but as Jews, we're constantly being told that the anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish feeling that we've experienced doesn't exist, that it's in our mind. And it's it's really unfair and, and not nice. Interestingly, um, going back to your work, um, I know that you're about to produce or and appear in um, a production of The Merchant of Venice, which Juliet Stevenson actually on on this programme told me in an interview she felt was probably one of the plays that were unproducible these days because of the content. So why, of all people, have you chosen The Merchant of Venice as your project? Um, well, I, I have to say, I hate The Merchant of Venice. I think it's a horrible play. I remember reading it at school and I've seen many a production and I don't know what is worse, either people laughing at Shylock and his ducats or my, and my, his daughter or pitying him. But I've always felt there was a way of, of reframing that uh, play. So what I have worked on with Bridget Larmore from Watford Palace Theatre and other directors is to take the character of Shylock and base her on my great-grandmother, Annie, who grew up in the East End, these were, t- you know, with all my great aunts, these were tough Jewish women who had seen utter horrors in Eastern Europe. They were often widows. They, um, I had a great uh, aunt called Sarah Portugal who used to wear a slash of red lipstick and smoke a pipe. And she ran the family business in the absence of any men. And we workshopped it to see what would happen if you took a this female matriarchal Shylock and you stuck her in the East End in 1936 in the tenements with this one daughter, Jessica, and you stood her against the Oswald Mosley followers of that upper class um, uh, echelons. And it really worked. So when you put Antonio in as a Mosley acolyte and you made all um, Bassanio's friends, those Bullingdon boy kind of posh boys, and then you turned um, Portia into one of those sort of Mitford fascist admirers like Unity Mitford and Diana Cooper, um, it just came together and it told a real story of what I had experienced of misogyny and anti-Semitism against a backdrop of growing fascism in this country in the 30s. And what a brilliant warning it is to other minorities who come have come here and have felt unwelcome and have had the women have had to fight in order to find their place. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because this whole rhetoric about taking our 
country back seems scarily, scarily pertinent at the moment, doesn't it, in that context? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's why Ridley Road has impacted so much because um, Sarah's so cleverly weaved in that that those words of, of um, taking back our country, ownership, pride in who we are, and that somehow in times of great insecurity, political, economic and otherwise, we have to look, you know, they look to others to blame for the lack of something that's missing in their own lives. And the Jew, unfortunately, being Jewish, Jews have always been caught in the pincer of the hard right and the hard left. They're just somehow caught in the middle um, and that it, they are often to blame. And, it, you know, anti-Semitism has mutated over the years uh, from being Christ killers and in the Enlightenment to um, being, you know, religiously wrong and then under Hitler for being uh, genetically lower to being lower than a rat. And now some, it's, it's sort of mutated into a, almost a, a rabid anti-Zionism, uh, which takes on very um, anti-Semitic tones sometimes. So people can, um, people, you know, turn on their Jews when it shows a bigger sickness in society. And as society, as history has shown us, when you allow anti-Semitism to flourish, it's like the canary in the coal mine, all other evils to a lot of other people will follow. And how troublesome is Israel in all of this? Because, of course, it's that conflict that really gets people animated on either side of this debate, isn't it? You know what, as, as David said, and David Badil said in his book, you know, anti-Semitism in this country shouldn't have anything to do with Israel. You know, it's a foreign country. We don't vote there. My grandparents weren't um, oppressed, murdered, gassed, experimented on in concentration camps because of Israel. It was because they were Jewish. You know, Jews weren't crucified in York because in the Middle Ages because of Israel. It's because they were Jewish. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> the Spanish Inquisition didn't happen because of Israel. It's because they were Jewish. And similarly, but, know, there wasn't, my- but there wasn't a, a Jewish homeland then. No. And then we get into, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But my point is, is that anti-Semitism now is not, I don't think, has solely risen because of the um, because of the state of Israel. I think anti-Semitism is a is is an old hatred and is a um, gosh I can't believe Mariella that I've become a spokesperson for this because <laughs> I'm just an actress. How have I ended up? With... But um, I uh, I think anti-Semitism is something we have to watch. I think it's a greater indicator of um of a of a, of a greater sickness. And I think it's very you know it's very e- it's very easy. I think Israel is a separate subject. But I think if every time. I will put something out about anti-Semitism and somebody comes back to me in this country and somebody will come back to me and say, yes, but what about the Palestinians? Yes, but what about the Palestinians? I think my friend Rachel Riley tweeted out the other day that she liked a cheesecake from the English Cheesecake Company and about 20 people wrote back to her and said, for every cheesecake you eat, you murder a Palestinian. I mean, you know, one has to question the levels of whether that is genuine Palestinian activism or whether that, you know, has a, well, a borderline I mean, anti-Semitism there. There's an awful lot on Twitter that you wouldn't really call genuine activism anyway, no. isn't there, as, as you know, only too well. Um, aside one thing from- I would say, sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, but one mm-hmm. thing I would say is, you know, I don't hear, um, you know, Benny Wong and, and Gemma Chan are wonderful act- actors, and I, I would like to hope that they don't get told in a rehearsal room repeatedly asking to qualify their opinion on the Uyghurs or qualify their opinion on China's oppressions of minorities or freedom of speech. 
And that is the point that it has come to, that Jewish actors that I know are sort of frightened to go into rooms and be openly Jewish because they're constantly being asked as a purity test to talk about their opinion on Israel. A lot of them haven't even got an opinion on Israel. You and I could talk for a thousand years. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, sadly, our Zoom link will run out and we don't have a thousand years. So <laughs> can we talk just a little bit as well? Because aside from Ridley Road and The Merchant of Venice, uh, which I think is is starting in Watford, is that right? And then coming yes, to London? I think they're gonna, we, we're going to announce it very soon. I think it starts in Watford. I think it's going to go on a tour. And then I'm hoping it will come into London, um, hopefully to Wilton's, which is on Cable Street. Um, I'm so excited to see that. I think it's yeah, such think an interesting be- take on it. Um, but you've also been working on season two of, of the comedy Sandylands, uh, which airs on, I think, the 25th of <laughs> October on Gold. So you must have been direly in need of a bit of a bit of comedy after all of your activism. Or is it not funny to be making a comedy, if you know what I mean? Well, it's funny. Um no, actually, that one was. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes comedy is much harder than drama. And what I thought, you know, one of the things I will say is having been told this will cancel your career. And after It's a Sim went out, a lot of them, a lot of those people did try to cancel my career. I've never been busier. So um, I'd like to thank them <laughs> for helping me find my voice and confidence, which I think is fed into my career. So thanks for that, guys. Um, yes, Sandy Lands is very, very funny. Having gone from sort of Nazi uh, fighting Nazis to go to Western Supermare with David Williams and Sanjeev Bhaskar, um, amongst others, and Craig Parkinson to be messing around uh, as a, a woman called Donna Vegas, who's a sort of failed a cruise ship singer who comes back thinking her husband's dead and wants to get the money to discover that he's actually alive and hiding in his old house it has been very funny i can see you're still channeling donna when you shake your hair um, and i think that um in lockdown you changed the way you dressed a little bit and i'm not sure if you actually did it but you had sort of dreams or fantasies about wandering into your local tesco in pink taffeta you just got so fed up of not being able to dress up um, oh have you managed to have you managed to you know scratch that itch yeah, I did. we did. I was, I'm was. i on a Zoom app with my lovely friends. I've got Sarah Parrish and Tamsin Althwaite and Amanda Holden and Lisa Faulkner. We used to do a regular, uh, we would meet regularly. And in the absence of us being able to, we'd do a cocktail night every Friday. And uh, we, we would dare each other to go out in, in clothes that we hadn't seen for a while. I think Amanda took the bins out in her wedding dress. I definitely went out in a silver sequin dressed to the local shops one day. <laughs> Did you get strange looks or did people just think, yeah, this is a weird period of time and there's a woman in, in sequins in the, in, the, in the local corner shop? Local corner shop, getting some ketchup for my daughter, I think in the sequins and slippers. And you know what? Nobody batted an eyelid. Nobody cared anymore. <laughs> just happy to, I, think people, I think that is the wonderful thing. You could literally walk out in a panda suit and, um, and, and, and some, and some flip flops and nobody would care. Just finally, I'm sure this is extremely disingenuous because you've said that uh, given the choice, you'd happily stay in bed all day, um, which I really can't see happening. And I can't believe that those words ever came out of your mouth. Oh, I would, Marion, don't you? Bed is the most exciting. You know, like when we were younger, going to bed early and not being able to go to the party was a punishment. Well, now it just feels like bliss just to get in bed on a Saturday night. What could be bad? That was actress Tracy-Ann Oberman speaking to me a little earlier. BBC One's new four-part drama, Ridley Road, is on Sunday evenings on BBC One at nine o'clock and available on the iPlayer.
for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Thank you.